But tonight, I want you to find Revelation chapter 5. Of course, next Wednesday night, Thanksgiving Eve, we'll not be meeting. We're having our Thanksgiving Eve service Sunday night, again with the meal, the Lord's Supper, testimony service. Uh, that's this coming Sunday night. Next Wednesday, we will not be meeting. And then uh, we'll reconvene in two weeks from tonight. So uh, find Revelation chapter 5, the answer to life's greatest dilemmas. A great passage on worship and especially the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. When we find ourselves in life's dilemmas and problems and don't feel like there's an answer, we need to uh, do more than simply look at our problems. We need to look at the person, Jesus Christ. Because even when we feel like there's not an answer, there is. Amen? Uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp a gold and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. On the afternoon of August 2nd, 1997, James... Olive, a 39-year-old unemployed construction worker, woke up, found himself in a dilemma. He was lying face down between the rails on the local railroad tracks. According to the Chicago Tribune News Service, police believe Olive might have been drinking and he passed out on the track. Olive said he, he slipped, onto, uh, slipped on a rock while walking his dog and was knocked out. So he had a vastly different story than what police said. Well, whatever the cause, when Olive woke up, he realized what a dilemma he was in. He had real problems. You see, he realized he was not alone on those railroad tracks. Passing over top of him was a 109-car freight train. He said, I got a headache, let me tell you. 
He later said from his Oak Hill, Florida hospital bed, about every three or four seconds, an axle would come along and crack me upside the head. (laughs) But it's not like I could get up and go anywhere. He said, it's a good thing I wasn't on my back or that train would have ripped my face off. (laughs) Quite a dilemma. What dilemmas do you have today? How big are your problems in, your, in life? you have any problems with grandkids? Some of the younger ones in here, maybe with kids. Got any financial problems? Marriage problems? How about a relationship gone sour at work? What problems do you have? What dilemmas do you have? And what do you do with those dilemmas? Do you stay awake at night? Do you worry yourself sick? Do you pace the floor? Do you wring your hands? Or do you simply say, hey, it's the other guy's problem. Let him worry about it. What do you do with your problems and your dilemmas in life? Well, let's see what John found out. About this. Now, it's really unfortunate that a chapter division occurs between chapter 4 and 5 because you see, chapter 5 is a continuation of the worship that began back in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 with me a minute. Pick up reading in verse 2. John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one seated, sit, sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. What a vision that was. And as part of this vision, John sees God seated on his throne. Well, you move into chapter 5 and and you look at verse 1. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written uh, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And so there is a smooth continuation between chapters 4 and 5. Now, what we see in chapter 4 is a vision of the awesomeness of God. His providence, His power, His sovereignty. You move into chapter 5 and you see this scroll in His hand. First of all, tonight, I want you to see the problem. Verses 1 to 4, the problem. What is the problem that John sees that is being encountered here? Nobody could open the scroll. Why? Why could no one open the scroll? No one was worthy. Exactly. Now, the word book in verse 1 literally refers to a scroll. Now, normally a scroll was written only on one side... Now, this one is written on both sides, front and the back. And the idea is, it is so packed full of contents that every ounce of available space must be utilized. Now, what are the contents? There are some scholars that say the contents of this scroll uh, are all of the names that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Doesn't seem to be the best answer, but that's the position some take. Other scholars take the position that the contents of this scroll are the whole of the Old Testament. Probably in reality, though, it is the grand story of redemption with its consummation that we're going to see played out here in the book of Revelation. 
Because beginning in chapter 6, if we were to keep reading tonight, what we would see is, is these seals being broken. And, and as each seal is broken, and, and John records the contents of that portion of this scroll, it, it's the unfolding of end-time events and the conclusion of history as God is wrapping things up on planet Earth. Uh, and so that's probably what it is, the story of redemption that is gathered up the last days beginning with Christ going all the way through the consummation of the end. Uh, you know, when the seventh seal is broken, then we get into seven trumpets, and that carries us down through chapter 11. And after the seventh trumpet, we get into the bowls of wrath or judgment being poured out. And so again, the contents of the scroll are the prophecies of these end-time events. And what we see in these prophecies specifically, what we see is the redemption of believers and the condemnation of unbelievers. Now again, what's the dilemma? The dilemma is that no one is found who is worthy to break the seals and begin to open the book. Now there have been many people throughout history who would be willing, right? If, if we were talking about willingness, plenty of people who would be willing. I think of that great Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was an egomaniac. He would have been willing. Likewise, Alexander the Great, of whom it said that when he had conquered the then known world, he sat down to cry because there were no more countries to conquer. And he died in a drunken stupor at age 33. Then there were the various Caesars of the Roman Empire. Then there was Napoleon. Think about Hitler and Hitler's evil plan to conquer Europe and wipe out who he considered lesser races on the face of the earth and to replant countries with the German race who he thought was superior. Think about Genghis Khan. He's believed to be one of the all-time great military strategists. It's said that even modern warfare strategists look, still look to some of the methods of Genghis Khan. In fact, I read that uh, Norman Schwarzkopf in Desert Storm, back, what, 1990? Some of the things they did in, in Iraq are out of the books, literally the plans of Genghis Khan. Our forces use some of the strategies of Genghis Khan. Great military leader. There's also great presidents in the U.S. Uh, a book in a bookstore, I was looking at that, and, and the author was rating the best presidents and the worst presidents in the United States. And in, in his opinion, Abraham Lincoln was the greatest of all presidents. Perhaps the Lincoln would be willing to take the scroll. But again, folks, willingness is not the question here, is it? Not willingness, but what? Worthiness. The question is, who is worthy? Now, you'll notice immediately they begin a threefold search to find someone worthy. They search in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Think about in heaven. Who would you encounter in heaven? Saints who have gone before, and who else? Angels. Two angels in the Bible are named. Who are those two? Gabriel and Michael. Exactly. But again, no one's worthy. Gabriel. Think of Gabriel. He announced the birth of Jesus Christ. 
not worthy to open this book. Search made on earth, no one's worthy. In addition to those I mentioned a moment ago, I think of an Enoch who walked so closely with God that the book of Genesis simply says, and he was not. Somebody once said that Enoch walked so closely with God that one day God simply said to him, Enoch, we're a lot closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come on home with me? And so that's what Enoch did. Not Abraham either. God called Abraham his friend. Imagine being called the friend of God. Isaiah. Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. The prince of the prophets, not worthy. Mary, the mother of Jesus, even though she's most highly favored among women, not worthy to do this. Paul, the greatest missionary and theologian the church has ever had. As far as being worthy to take this book and, and break the seals and open the contents, no, not worthy. Neither was Simon Peter. Or James and John, the sons of thunder. Search was made under the earth. Who in the world would that refer to? That would certainly include all who have died. Now folks, just stop and think about what's being communicated here. No angel, no man, whether living or dead, no one is worthy. Now, pretend that you don't have the rest of the chapter, or you don't know the rest of the chapter yet. What would you think? You think we've got a problem on our hands, right? You see, to the one who is worthy, the authority was given to that one to unroll the scroll and to begin executing all of the events that make up the consummation of our redemption. So a lot's at stake here. But no one's worthy. Now what a stunning revel revelation of the human race this is. What's this a testimony of? The depravity of men, right? Throughout history, men have not wanted to admit this. They've not wanted to admit their shortcomings. So many men are, are filled with pride and they've adopted the same attitude as that Greek philosopher uh, Protagoras who used to say, man is the measure of all things. Think of the arrogance in that statement, man is the measure of all things. But that's certainly kind of been how men are, right? In their pride and in their arrogance. But what does the Bible affirm? And what do we observe right here in chapter 5 of Revelation? We observe the depravity of man. And that nobody is worthy. Nobody can take on this task. No matter how good they think they are, how smart they think they are, regardless of all the advancements we've had made in human history, we cannot do a single thing to solve the greatest dilemmas that we have as the human race. The greatest dilemmas that we have as the human race are spiritual dilemmas. Peace with God, reconciliation with God. And how God's going to unfold all of history and how things are going to end up. What can you and I do to determine that? Nothing. You and I don't have the control over life that sometimes we suppose that we have, do we? Have you ever stopped to think how little of life you really control? You don't really control that much, do you? The 
Man is a failure at being able to solve the greatest problems that he faces. Because again, these problems are spiritual in nature. And the best that man has to offer comes up short every single time. And because of this, John weeps. It's the only occurrence of weeping in heaven that I'm aware of because what's the Bible say? That he's going to dry all of our tears in heaven. There's not going to be any weeping. And yet here John is weeping. And the word that he uses for weeping is loud sobbing. Now you've got to understand what's going on here. To John it seems like this is a situation of utter despair and it must have seemed as though the curse of God on the human race would now never be lifted. Was paradise going to be lost forever? Was the cross impotent after all to save mankind from God's wrath? Was there going to be no lasting atonement for man's sin? In the end, was evil going to win out over good? Was hate going to win out over love? Was death going to win out over life? Who can really blame John for weeping? You ever feel that way over your problems? You ever feel like there's no help? No help whatsoever? You can't do anything about problems that you see and you don't know anybody else who can do anything about those problems either. And you're tempted to despair. Folks, think of the people out in the world that don't have the answers that we have and they're filled with that despair every day. Despair is the address where they live. Now thankfully there's a message to report after recording the problem here. Secondly, we see the person. Look at verse uh, 5 and, and read down through verse 7 with me. In verse 5 it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The elder says to John, stop weeping. Look to the person who's none other than Jesus Christ. Behold him. Take a good look at him. John, stop looking at merely the problem and look at the person because there is one person, there is one man who is worthy. Jesus Christ is worthy. You know, I think of what the psalmist said in Psalm 121. He said, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the noon, moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Folks, who do we need to look to? We need to look to the Lord. The psalmist is saying here, am I, am I going to lift up my eyes to the hills like the pagans around me do? They build their pagan altars, the Canaanites up on the high places. Am I going to lift up my eyes to the hills, to those pagan altars? Is that where my help's going to come from? No, my help's going to come from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
And that's what John is being told here. Look to the Lord. Look to the only one who can be your source of strength. You look around you at other people. You look at yourself, your own resources. You look at what the world has to offer. And again, folks, when it comes to the biggest problems of life and humanity, what happens? We come up bankrupt if we don't look to the Lord, right? We come up bankrupt. Sure. Right? Right. Right. Sure. Because certainly one way you can interpret it's no more weeping, that he's not going to allow weeping to continue. Not saying it won't, like you're saying, won't be there initially maybe but it certainly won't continue in heaven. That's fine. Folks, our problems are minute compared to what John faced in the vision because, again, it truly appeared to John that the consummation of the plan of redemption was in jeopardy. He's thinking nothing's going to ever change. All of God's promises, God's final victory is going to come crashing down. John must have felt like the psalmist in in Psalm 73 who said, Surely, surely my faith has been in vain. But again, what was the issue with John? John. He had been looking only at the problem and not at the person. The elder says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. John had seen his problems without seeing Jesus. Now, folks, does this mean that when we get a glimpse of Jesus that all of our problems in life are suddenly going to go away? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. Sometimes God even allows our problems for a reason. There was Paul, his thorn in the flesh. Paul prayed three times, God take it away. And this thorn in the flesh, the Greek word, is not some little splinter, but it's the word for a big stake. I mean, it was something significant in his life, like a big spike or or stake. And he petitioned God three different times for God to remove it. And God said, no, I'm not going to because, Paul, you're going to learn my grace is sufficient for you. Problems have a way of pinning us to God in dependence, right? Dependence upon God. Sometimes problems have a way, God uses our problems to equip us to help somebody else later on who's going through that same problem. 2 Corinthians 1. Where Paul says, God's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions that we might be able to turn around and comfort somebody else who's going through the same affliction that we went through. So God's got a purpose in in our problems and suffering. And so I'm not suggesting for a moment that God just erases all of our problems away. Uh, But what I am suggesting is just like John, whatever problems you're in the midst of, instead of looking at those problems 
without seeing Jesus in the midst of it, you need to turn your eyes upon him. Jesus is the answer to man's greatest problems. Paul said in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You know what? John learned here that Jesus is able to take care of the biggest problems in human history. If Jesus can take care of the biggest problems in human history, he can take care of your problems and my problems too, right? If he doesn't erase your problems, he'll give you the grace and the strength to endure it. You and I can know that if he created everything, if he paid the price for our redemption, if he created people so that no two are alike, if he hung the stars in their courses, if he can arrange the whole plan of redemption and carry it out to completion, then he can certainly handle any issue that I face. Now, when John is told to look to Jesus, notice what he sees. He looks to Jesus, and in verse 5, how, how is Jesus described here? How's he described? The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion is a picture of strength and power. A lion evokes fear in his enemies. What do we call the lion? The king of the jungle, right? I love watching those animal shows on Discovery Channel. You like seeing those? Do you ever see any of the African safari uh, documentaries and so forth? Did you ever see the one that was called the, uh, the Hyena Killers? Did you ever see that one? Uh, hyenas. Don't you just hate those things? They show up and rah, 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 they have that laugh about, you know, and, and they'll encircle their enemy and gang up on and all. And this particular show was, was showing how the hyenas were even attacking female lions and how they would get the female lion uh, isolated away from uh, uh, the pride. And they would attack her and, and all of a sudden these big old male lions would come on the scene. And it'd look around, and it'd take off after these hyenas. And it, it, it showed these lions chasing the hyenas. And, and the hyenas were scared to death of them, those big old male lions. And, and the, the lions would chase them down and, and get right over them and chomp one bite across the back spine of the hyena and it would drop immediately, screaming out, and it would be paralyzed. I mean, that, that lion would just attack it, and, and, and that hyena, you know, it was causing such chaos. But man, when that lion showed up, that male lion, it was all over for the hyenas. And as it was killing those hyenas, I was, I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah, get them all. <laughs> That's what a lion is, a picture of strength. Folks, it is no accident that Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Whatever problems you have, he has the strength. He has the strength. Whatever you face. And again, he may not take the situation away from you, but he'll give you the strength, his strength to bear up underneath it, right? Not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, but how else is he described here? 
the root of David. Now, in the Old Testament, there was no greater king than David. David was the shepherd boy, the man after God's own heart. Saul was a great disappointment to God. Saul was the proverbial tall, dark, and handsome. When everybody saw Saul, they said, he's the man. He's going to be our king. But Saul didn't have a heart steadfast and true to the Lord. And God took the kingdom away from Saul and raised up David. And he said of David that David was somebody who had a heart after his. And all of the kings, and the, they measured all of their kings up against David. And all of their kings, in their view, came up short against David compared to David. Now, what's it saying of Jesus when Jesus is described here as the root of David? What's being described there? Hmm? He was before David, right? Before David and greater than David. In other words, he was the source of strength for David. Anything David was able to do was only because of Jesus. Human eyes, it looked like Jesus came after David. Chronology, certainly he came after But he was also before. Because he's eternal God. Second member of the Trinity. Never been a time that he was not. He's the root of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah and and the root of David. Not only that, he's the overcomer. And it's in the present tense. He overcame and the results go on. The, The results of his victory go on and on and on. And not only that, not only is he the overcomer, but then he says in verse 6, he's the lamb. And notice what he says about the lamb. The lamb is standing, although it has been slain. He was slain. In the Old Testament, when somebody sinned, the person was required to bring a lamb to the priest at the temple. The sinner had to grasp the lamb with both hands, confess over the lamb his sin. It's it's as though it was a picture of the, the sin being transferred to a substitute. And then they would take the knife, they'd slit the throat, kill the lamb, so that the lamb died as a result of the sinner's actions. Sin has consequences. And then the priest took the blood and and sprinkled it on the altar to make atonement for the person's sin. Based on the sinner's confession of sin, obedience to God's instructions, and faith in the blood sacrifice, the person was forgiven. John the Baptist sees Jesus. And what's John the Baptist say to his disciples? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's it's like John is saying, guys, all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were like audio-visual aids that were pointing forward till you could see the real thing. And in Jesus, you have the real thing. The sacrifices were like IOU notes in a way. When somebody, when, when someone sacrificed for sin, it was as though God said, uh, I owe you forgiveness, I owe you redemption, I owe you atonement. The blood of lambs and bulls and goats, though, could never take away man's sin because it was only symbolic. They pointed uh, to God's sending of his son Jesus. And when Christ died on the cross for sin, his sacrifice for sin was accepted by God and all of the IOU notes were paid in full. When John sees Jesus here, he sees him as a lamb slain. Now, he's standing as a lamb slain. Now, normally, a lamb slain would be doing what? 
stay with me here. A lamb slain would be what? Would be dead, would be laying down. A, a slain lamb standing, what's the significance of that? He's alive. He didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. He's alive forevermore. Death has no hold on him. The grave, the tomb has no hold on him. And the Bible says, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. If he were dead, he couldn't make intercession for you. But he's not dead. He died for your sin. But he rose again at the right hand of God where he's alive and he's making intercession for you. You're not alone in your problems. Then he goes on in verse 6 to point out he's omnipotent. He's omnipotent. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What's being communicated by these horns? Seven is the number of what? Completeness. Seven horns. What, what's it showing? That Christ has perfect, complete power. Not only perfect, complete power, but seven eyes. What's that saying? He sees perfectly. He's not only omnipotent, he's omniscient. He sees everything, he knows everything. Remember what uh, David said of him in Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your right hand will lead me and the right hand will lay hold of me. If I should say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. Perfect, complete power perfect, complete vision. And that's who John sees. That's who John sees. Folks, think about what's going on in this scene. John had focused on man's inability, the inability of all angels, His own inability. But he's pointed to look at Jesus in whom is complete power, complete omniscience, the one who died for our sins and has been raised again to give us new life and is standing at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Do Christians need to be in despair? Boy, that's not a very convincing answer y'all gave. Do Christians need to be in despair? No. And so again, John is told to stop weeping and look to the one who is the answer. Notice when Jesus walks over to God, seated upon the throne, takes the scroll out of his hand, what happens in heaven? They break out in praise and worship, right? Look at verse 8 and following. It says, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and 
and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with a loud voice or saying with a loud voice rather worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Praise. So John has gone from seeing this, this first scene of a problem, what he thought was a problem, to being directed to look at the person who is the answer. And now, after seeing Jesus, the person who's the answer, now what happens? All of heaven breaks out in praise. Isn't that great? They sing a new song, verse 9 says. They sing a new song. Now, folks, don't, don't you love some of the old songs? Some of the old hymns we sang one tonight, Victory in Jesus. The Bible here in, in Ephesians 5 and also in Colossians 3 tells us that we're to sing what? Hymns? Psalms, spiritual songs. And here they're singing a new song. We don't forget the old songs. But when the people of God in the, in the Bible, when they encountered God and came to a new understanding of God, what did they do oftentimes? They turned this experience into a new song, right? That's why in the church, as long as our songs are doctrinally correct, we need to be singing the old and the new. Some people, some churches today, they've done away with all the hymns, all of them just singing new songs. Some reject all the new songs and sing just hymns. The Bible says we sing it all, the old and the new. We praise God with our songs, right? They sing a new song here. And it's a song of praise for salvation. And it is a song of praise for the purpose and the future He's given us. What problems do you face? I want to invite you tonight to see Jesus afresh and anew. He's the great I am. Jesus said, I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. I am. He's the one who's all sufficient. Right? Worthy is the lamb. Mankind has a problem. We have a sin problem. The Bible is a book of redemption. From beginning to end, it tells one central story. Different characters. Different themes that show this one great story of redemption. It's not some... It's not some scattered piece where one section doesn't relate to the other sections. It all ties together to tell one beautiful story of redemption with one central character, that central character being Jesus Christ. We started in a garden. We're going to end in a garden. It's going to be a garden without sin, not even the possibility of sin in a place where he's making all things new going to wipe all tears away from all eyes it's all because of what he's done in Christ the 
Jesus is the answer. Again, he doesn't take all our problems away. He gives us strength and his presence and his grace and mercy to make it through. To make it through until we really make it through. You follow what I'm saying? What do you see when you look at the world and when you look at mankind? When we look at all the bad that we see today, what's the world do oftentimes? Despair. But what do you and I need to do? We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. History is his story, and he's moving everything along right on schedule. He's not taken by surprise. God's not thrown a curveball. It's going to wrap up exactly as he plans to wrap it up. And the one who gets the praise is Christ. Because it's He that's accomplished our redemption. So as we go into this Thanksgiving week, I want you to think of the problems of the world, the mess and the misery of the world. And as a believer, have a different perspective. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Understand what He's done for us. And if we do that, we're able to press on and persevere and have gratitude and to be a witness to others. And we're filled with hope. Because the Lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has overcome.